Praise the Lord. Well, we'll invite you to turn your Bibles to John chapter 14 and math uh, and uh, excuse me, Mark chapter 16 tonight. If you're a regular around here, you may recall that four weeks ago we started what we thought was going to be a one night service on uh, faith in the name of Jesus. And now we're four weeks going, four weeks strong and, and uh, got a lot more to go. So we're uh, we're going to continue along the lines that we have been teaching faith in the name of Jesus. We've been using as text scriptures, John chapter 14 and Mark chapter 16. John gives us some insight into the last night uh, that Jesus spent with the disciples that none of the, none of the other gospel writers give us. John uh, was there, and so this is an eyewitness testimony. It's the, the most accurate testimony known uh, in the world. Somebody that was there, somebody heard it, somebody that witnessed it. And Jesus told the disciples certain things uh, and, and made one of the, the most outstanding statements in all of Scripture, really. I mean, it's, uh, I, I don't know how you judge one against another, but it is certainly an outstanding statement that he made to his disciples. John chapter 14, verse 12, he said, Verily, verily, I say unto you. Now, anytime you see verily, verily, it's Jesus saying, uh, This is the truth, the whole truth, and nothing but the truth. I really, really, really mean this. He's making an emphasis about the reality and of the statement he's about to, to make. He said, Verily, verily, I say unto you, He that believeth on me, the works that I do shall he do also, and greater works than these shall he do, because I go unto my Father. We've talked about this before. We know what the works of Jesus were. He went about uh, their cities and villages teaching in their synagogues, preaching the gospel of the kingdom and healing the sick, healing every sickness and every disease among the people. So we know preaching, teaching, and healing were the works of Jesus. I'm not sure what the greater works are. I know some people say in the modern day church that the greater works are getting people saved because Jesus wasn't able to get anybody saved and we can. Well, John chapter 20 tells us Jesus did get his disciples saved. So that really doesn't hold true. But even if we accept that as, uh, as the reality, as those being the greater works that Jesus was talking about, notice Jesus didn't just say we would do greater works instead of the works he did. He said we would do the same works he did, preaching, teaching, and healing and greater works. So we can expect a manifestation of the power of God. Amen? Now, how's that going to come about? Verse 13, Jesus said, And whatsoever you shall ask in my name. The word ask means to call for, to require, or to make a demand on. We've talked about this before. It's like a checking account. When you write a check, you're placing a demand on the contract that you have with your bank. You're demanding that they pay whoever you wrote the check to whatever amount of money that you wrote the check for. So it has nothing to do with attitude. A lot of people say, hear that and they say, well, that's just arrogance and you can't deal with God like that. Folks, it's a legal contract. It has nothing to do with attitude. Jesus said, whatever you call for or require or demand in my name, that will I do that the Father may be glorified in the Son. If you shall ask, call for, require, or demand anything in my name, I will do it. Now, notice the context he's talking about. The context he's talking about is in doing his works. He's not talking about using the name of Jesus in your personal life. That comes at a different time. In John chapter 16, Jesus, later on in the evening, John said, uh, or Jesus said to the disciples, that whatever you ask the Father in my name, now that word ask means to make a request. Whatever He's talking about the name of Jesus in prayer. Whatever you ask the Father in my name, he will give it to you. But here he's talking about the use of the name of Jesus for, on the behalf of others. He's talking about the name of Jesus to spread the gospel, in other words. 
Now, I also notice that he said uh, in verse 12, He that believeth on me, the works that I do shall he do also, and greater works than these shall he do, because I go unto my Father. But then he talks about in verse 13 and 14, Whatsoever you call for or require or demand in my name, that's what I'll do. So believing on him is believing in his name. Right? He's got to be talking about something more than just getting saved. He can't be just saying, and whosoever shall get saved shall do the same works that I do, and even greater works than these shall he do because I go unto my Father. We know that's not the case. Well, then what does he mean? He means believing in his name to do the works. So much of the church world seems to stop at believing in the the name of Jesus only where forgiveness of sins is concerned. But you can get saved and never do a work that Jesus did. You can get saved and never do anything that Jesus did here on the earth or ever approach the greater works, whatever those may happen to be. I'm not really too worried about the greater works. I I figure if I can just get the works under control, get the works handled, then, you know, the greater works take care of themselves. Amen? So he's got to be talking about something more than just getting saved. Believing on me has got to be something more than just getting saved. No, he's talking about believing in his name. These are the the signs or these are the works that will follow those that believe in his name. Because believing in his name, calling for, requiring in his name is the very source for doing the same works that he did and even greater works than he did. Now, folks, if Jesus told the truth about this, let's just get down to the the nitty-gritty. Let's just talk like real people. Let's forget that we're in church and talk like real people. If Jesus told the truth, then he said that the name represents him to such a degree that he backs up whatever demand is placed on it. That's a little hard for us to accept, isn't it? Turn back with me to Mark chapter 16. Mark chapter 16, Jesus is talking to his disciples just before he ascends up into heaven. And he gives them what we know of as the Great Commission. Beginning in verse 15, he said, Go into all the world and preach the gospel to every creature. He that believeth and is baptized shall be saved, but he that believeth not shall be damned. This this baptism has nothing to do with water baptism. He's talking about being baptized into Christ. Because water baptism is not a prerequisite for salvation. He's talking about whoever makes Jesus the Lord of his life. That's what causes somebody to be baptized into Christ or made one in Christ Jesus. That's what he's talking about. He that believeth and is baptized shall be saved, but he that believeth not shall be damned. The issue comes down to what you, whether you accept or reject Jesus for everybody. And these signs, verse 17, and these signs shall follow them to believe in my name. Now, we've said this before. The, uh, the translators put the punctuation in here because the original text has no punctuation. It has no verse separation. Nobody wrote these things in chapters and verse. And so the translators added the punctuation in the verse, chapter and verse divisions to the best of their understanding to help us out for reference sake. And for the most part, they did a great job. But all translators operate on two things. Number one, their knowledge of the language. And number two, their understanding of God. Well, if we have greater understanding of God in a certain area than the translators did, then we have a right to change the punctuation without changing the text. So that's what I'm going to do. Notice in verse 17, And these signs shall follow them that believe in my name. He's talking about believing in his name. See, the punctuation says, these signs shall follow them that believe. In my name they shall. Well, I don't know that we're really changing anything, but I want to emphasize believing in his name. 
A lot of people say they believe, and there's nothing following, there's no signs following. These signs shall follow them that believe in my name. Well, that jives completely with John chapter 14. Because Jesus said, you'll do the works that I do in my name, by placing a demand in my name. Well, believing in his name is placing a demand on it. So these signs shall follow them to believe in my name. Mentions uh, five things. First thing he says, they shall cast out devils. Authority over the devil, in other words. Second thing is they shall speak with new tongues. I don't know if you know this or not, but if you're spirit-filled, every time you speak with other tongues, you're speaking in the name of Jesus. That understanding would seem to me to cause a lot of people to want to speak in tongues more than they do. Okay, amen. These signs shall follow them that believe in my name. Number one, they'll cast out devils. Number two, they'll speak with new tongues. Number three, they shall take up serpents. This is a reference to to taking um, the power of the devil, lifting the power of the devil off of others. The word take up means to lift up as an anchor so that a boat would sail away. He's not talking about handling snakes. He's talking about delivering other people from the power of the devil. They shall take up serpents. A serpent represents the devil and his power. The uh, next thing, number four is, and if they drink any deadly thing, it shall not hurt them. That signifies divine protection in a lot of ways more than just drinking poison or something poisonous. You can see a lot of examples in the scripture where God protected people in, in ways that had nothing to do with drinking deadly things. It's, a, it's symbolic. It represents divine protection in the name of Jesus. And finally, the fifth one he says, the fifth sign is, and they, the believing ones, the ones that believe in his name, shall lay hands on the sick, and they, the sick, shall recover. I'm so glad Jesus didn't say, and there's a good chance that they might recover. He said they shall. So it comes down to believing in his name. But sometimes you need to get the sick to believe in the name with you. But you get faith in the name of Jesus, and sickness is never a problem. Let me say that again. You get faith in the name of Jesus. You believe in the name of Jesus and sickness will never be a problem. That doesn't mean you'll always get instant results. He's not talking about instant results here. Recovery is a process. He says that one of the signs that follow those that believe in the name of Jesus is a supernatural recovery from sickness. Doesn't always mean instant results. You may have to stand in faith, but you'll get results. So they went, uh, so then after the Lord had spoken, verse 19, unto them he was received up into heaven and sat on the right hand of God. And they went forth and preached everywhere, the Lord working with them. King James says them, but it's in italics. That means the translators added it. Let's take it out and see what it originally said. And they went forth and preached everywhere, the Lord working with and confirming the word. See, God will work with you as long as you're speaking the word. You stop speaking the word, he stops working with you. The Lord working with and confirming the word with signs following. Now, I want you to turn with me over to Acts chapter 3. We've uh, we've gone through and uh, uh, begun to go through the the book of Acts. And uh, for our um, message this evening, I I think it would do us well to to remind you of a couple of things that we've said. You know how in Acts chapter 2, the day of Pentecost, uh, the Holy Ghost was poured out. The 120 that were in the upper room were uh, filled with the Holy Ghost and began to speak with new tongues. Well, Jesus said that's one of the signs of those that believe in his name. So that must be an evidence 
of believing in his name, right? It says, then Peter preached to the crowd, 3,000 people got saved. In Acts chapter 3, they go to the temple at the hour of prayer and see a crippled guy sitting there. And Peter and John minister to him in the name of Jesus. They, this guy is looking for money. He's there for the purpose of begging for money. He's not looking for anything in, in a supernatural or spiritual manner. He's just looking for money. And Peter and John look at him, and Peter says, Silver and gold have I none, but such as I have, give I thee. In the name of Jesus, rise and walk. He picked him up, and the guy's ankle, feet and ankle bones received strength, and now he's healed. Well, that created a big stir. Everybody comes running together, and Philip uh, and uh, Peter starts telling the people, this is not our own power. It's not our own holiness. The two things that he made mention of are the two things that modern-day church thinks is the reason why signs and wonders and miracles either, uh, if they happen to occur, this is why, but mostly here's why they don't occur. Because the apostles had special power or they had a special place with God. And those are the two things that Peter says it wasn't, didn't have anything to do with it. He said it's not by our own power or our own holiness that we've made this man to walk. What is it then? It's the name of Jesus through faith in his name. See, the name of Jesus hasn't changed. I would, uh, well, I, I'm, let me, let me quote somebody else rather than saying it myself. Let me quote somebody else. Um, Dr. E.W. Kenyon said in his book on the wonderful name of Jesus, titled The Wonderful Name of Jesus, he said that the church was an apostate church when it came to believing in the name of Jesus. He said, now, we're saved. We believe in the name of Jesus up to the point of forgiveness of sins. But when it comes to using the name of Jesus and expecting supernatural and miraculous results, he said the modern-day church, and that was in his day back in the 40s and 50s, he said the church of his day was apostate. Well, folks, if the church back then was apostate, I think we've gone downhill since then. So what happens? Let's pick up in Acts chapter 4 where the... Disciples, Peter and John, are called before the council. They question them, realize that it was the name of Jesus that did the work. And uh, verse 15, we'll start in verse 15. It said, but when they had commanded them, Peter and John, to go aside out of the council, the council conferred among themselves, saying, what shall we do to these men? For that indeed a notable miracle has been done by them is manifest to all them that dwell in Jerusalem, and we cannot deny it. Folks, that's the reason I believe Jesus wants things done in his name. I believe that's the very reason he wants the same works, the same healings, the same miracles to be done in his name. Because when you've got something like this, this crippled man, man that was born crippled, the man has never walked, that everybody knows, now all of a sudden he's healed, walking around, no longer has to have his begging station at the beautiful gate. Who's can, who can deny that? This guy knows what the deal was. One Peter and John, they didn't do anything. They just said, in the name of Jesus, rise and walk. Well, then he knows it's the power in the name of Jesus that caused him to change, that caused him to be healed. We start getting some notable miracles. Who can say that doesn't work? Hello? Anybody out there? I wonder if that was God's plan. To do something that people couldn't deny. I wonder if signs and wonders and miracles are still used to provide evidence that people can't deny. Well, if they did these things in the name of Jesus and Jesus said the same works that he did, they would do also in greater works. Then 
unless the name of Jesus is changed. Because it wasn't just given to the disciples, it was given to everybody. Unless the name of Jesus is changed, then we can expect some of the same things today. Uh, Unless the name of Jesus has lost its power. Now, we know there's no other name under heaven where men can be saved. So we know the name of Jesus still holds at least half the power that it used to. Because people can still get saved by the name of Jesus. It's the only way you can get saved is by the name of Jesus. But maybe God's gone backwards. Maybe instead of God's power increasing and getting greater and greater and greater in the earth by more and more people getting saved and the gospel spreading, maybe it's been diminished. So it's only half of its power that it used to be. Anybody find anything in the Bible that says the name of Jesus will work until? Anybody find anything in the Bible that says the name of Jesus is Full strength until the apostles die and then it, then it backs up a little bit. Anybody find anything in the Bible that says God dials it back in any way whatsoever? Well, if it's not limited by time and it's not limited by the people using it and it's not limited by anything that God has planned to dial it back, then why would we expect the name of Jesus to be any different today than it was when Jesus spoke? Amen. So what are they going to do? They can't deny that a miracle has been done. Verse 17, but that it spread no further. Well, let's contain it. If we can't stop it, let's contain it. How is the devil, anybody going to, to, would anybody care to argue that these guys are not being influenced by the devil? Anybody want to take the position that these guys are really working on God's behalf in their plans? I'm talking about the council. No, certainly it's the devil trying to stop the work of God. Amen? Notice how the devil tries to stop the work of God. Even when faced with supernatural and miraculous results, here's what he does. If he can't stop it from happening in the beginning, then he wants to contain it. How do you contain it? But that it spread no further among the people, let us straightly threaten them that they speak henceforth to no man in this name. Now, folks, I would submit to you that for the most part, the devil's done a good job in that over the modern-day church. How much of the modern-day church hears about miracle power in the name of Jesus? Saving power. Yeah, okay, saving power. But that's half strength. See how the devil works? So what do they do? Verse 18. And they called them and commanded them not to speak at all nor teach in the name of Jesus. They threatened them. Don't you dare speak and preach in the name of Jesus. What do they do? They go back to their own company and pray that signs and wonders would be done in the name of the Lord Jesus. That's the answer for the devil trying to stop the name of Jesus from going forward. Well, what happens? Signs and wonders are done in the name of Jesus. Acts chapter 5 tells us about how the people... Uh, were getting healed to such a degree that they were getting healed by shadow. Verse um, 14, And believers were the more added to the Lord, multitude both of men and women, insomuch that they brought forth the sick into the streets and laid them on beds and couches, that at the least the shadow of Peter passing by might overshadow some of them. There came also a multitude out of the cities round about unto Jerusalem, bringing sick folks with them that were vexed with unclean spirits, and they were healed every one. 
Folks, do you stop and think about this. When the Bible says they were healed every one, do you realize what kind of revival is taking place? Every sick person is getting healed. Every demon-oppressed person is being set free. Why? Because they prayed that signs and wonders would be done in the name of Jesus. They kept preaching the power in the name of Jesus. Now, personally, I'm inclined to think that the greater work is just taking place here. You can't find anywhere in Jesus' ministry where somebody was healed by shadow. You start looking at the works of Jesus, I can't imagine any greater work in quality than what Jesus did. But here's a different method of healing that took place that we don't have record of in Jesus' ministry. Maybe that's a greater work. I don't know. Maybe not. I, maybe I'm wrong on that. Don't really know. It's, it's an interesting thought, though, huh? So what happens? The council comes back and throws the apostles in jail. Then what happens? An angel lets them out. And says, verse 19, but the angel of the Lord by night opened the prison doors and brought them forth and said, go stand and speak in the temple to these, to the people all the words of this life. Apparently preaching in the name of Jesus and speaking all the words of this life are, are, are synonymous terms. Go speak all the words of this life. Anything you tell somebody about the kingdom of God, you're speaking in the name of Jesus. I guess from that we could say that not every subject is teaching on the name of Jesus, but teaching any Bible subject is teaching in the name of Jesus. Right? So what do they do? They go to the temple. They start preaching again, telling people about the name of Jesus. The council calls them from jail the next morning. Can't find them. They get upset. What happened to these guys? Somebody comes in and says, well, they're in the temple. Then they're preaching in the name of Jesus. So the council brings them back before them, verse 28 of Acts chapter 5, saying, did we not straightly command you that you should not teach in this name? The folks can ask you a question. What do these guys have to be afraid of from the council? Throw us in jail? Angels let us out. Did we not straightly command you that you should not teach in this name? And behold, you have filled Jerusalem with your doctrine. Boy, that'd be great to say about your city, wouldn't it? We filled our city with the doctrine of the Jesus. And intend to bring this man's blood upon us. So what do they do? Verse 40, it says, when they had called the apostles, they beat them. They're stepping it up. They beat them and commanded them that they should not speak in the name of Jesus. And then they let them go. What did the apostles do? They counted themselves, they rejoiced that they were counted worthy to suffer shame for his name. Shame means persecution, dishonor. And daily in the temple and in every house, they cease not to teach and preach Jesus Christ. So they know that the, the, they know that the, the solution is the name. They know that the power is the name and they keep it going. Now turn with me over to Acts chapter nine. Thank you for letting me take a little bit of time to, to recap some of the things that we did before. Because now we're going to get to the name of Jesus in a little different uh, context. Beginning in verse 1. And Saul yet threatening, this is who later becomes Paul. Saul yet breathing out threatenings and slaughter against the disciples of the Lord went unto the high priest. 
and desired of him letters to Damascus to the synagogues, that if he found any of this way, whether they were of men or women, he might bring them bound unto Jerusalem. I want you to notice, folks, Paul is so zealous for persecuting Christians that it's his idea to get the high priest to let him have authorization to imprison and even kill, if necessary, those that believe in the name of Jesus. I want you to see this guy's zeal against the things of God. Now, hold your finger here. We're going to come back to this, but let's pick this story up from Paul's point of view. Look with me over to Acts chapter 26. Acts chapter 26, this is Paul standing before Agrippa, I think, or maybe it's Festus. Who is it? No, it's Paul before Agrippa. And notice what he says. Uh, let's see. We don't want to read this whole thing, but we want to pick it up where we need to. Um, let's pick up in verse 8. He says to a King Agrippa, why should it be thought a thing incredible with you that God should raise the dead? That's what they were, that's what the Jews accused him of preaching. That's the reason why he's standing before King Agrippa. The Jews finally decide, okay, what we're going to charge him with is preaching the resurrection of the dead. So Paul says before Agrippa, you know about these things. You're a judge. You're an expert in these matters. He said, why should it be thought a very, a thing incredible with you that God should raise the dead? Notice verse nine. I verily thought with myself, that I ought to do many things contrary to the name of Jesus of Nazareth. Well, what things is he talking about? Which thing also I did in Jerusalem and had many of the saints and many of the saints did I shut up in prison, having received authority from chief, the chief priests. And when they were put to death, I gave my voice against them. Well, we know that happened with Stephen. The Bible tells us that in Acts chapter six, didn't it? Or maybe it's well earlier in the book of Acts. Not sure which chapter. Verse 11, and I punished them often in every synagogue and compelled them to blaspheme. Now, I want you to notice this phrase, compelled them to blaspheme. That means Paul threatened to kill people unless they renounced Jesus. That's who this guy was. And I punished them often in every synagogue and compelled them to blaspheme and being exceedingly mad against them. The word mad does not mean angry. He's talking about I was out of my mind. I was consumed with anger and rage against these folks. And being exceedingly mad against them, I persecuted them even unto strange cities. Whereupon, as I went to Damascus with authority and commission from the chief priests, at midnight, O king, I saw in the way a light from heaven above the brightness of the sun. In other words, brighter than the sun. Shining round about me and them which journeyed with me. Now, notice what Paul says about his own experience. He said that everything that he did, all the persecution that he that he engaged in against the church, the stoning of Stephen, the putting people in prisons. And by the way, you need to realize some of these people didn't get out of prison that Paul put in prison. Paul goes about his merry way after he gets saved, and he starts preaching and teaching in the name of Jesus. And that's great that he got a lot of people saved and he went to the Gentiles. But a lot of the people that... that uh, uh, that he put in prison, stayed in prison. Some of them rotted and died in prison. When Paul talks about the things that he had to put aside and the things that he, of his past that he had to forget and move forward, he's talking about people's lives. He's talking about people that were still suffering in prison. He can't do a thing to get them out. 
how do you like that hanging over your head? You know, I just deal with, oh, we shouldn't have been unkind to this person. Paul's got people still in prison, rotting. Their lives draining away. That's who this guy was. All because he said he was doing things contrary to the name of Jesus. What does that mean? That means Paul was fighting just the same way that the chief priest and the council was fighting. He was fighting against the preaching and the name of Jesus. If it says he was exceedingly mad against Christians, what does that mean? That means when a sign or a wonder or a miracle took place, Paul went berserk. Because how do you argue against that? Paul could stand there and argue with anybody. He had the same training as the high priest. He could argue with anybody about the law of Moses and what he believed the law to be uh, about and, and what he believed to be true according to the law. When it came to a miracle, what did he do with that? Come to the guy at the beautiful day, gate that was healed. And when Jerusalem was filled with people getting healed by shadow, how do you say that's not God? People are talking about the name of Jesus. They're talking about Jesus having been crucified and raised from the dead. And in his name, all these signs and wonders and miracles are taking place. They're not even taking credit for it themselves. They're not trying to uh, gather people unto themselves. Peter is not trying to gather the, the Peterians. No, there's Christians. It's the name of Jesus that's doing this. These guys went berserk. Paul went berserk. His zeal was so great, his rage against the church was so great that he went to the high priest and said, let me go other places and put people in prison too. It's not like they came to Paul and said, Paul, we've got a special assignment. Somebody needs to do it. You're young. You can take care of this. He went to them. Folks, do you realize who God reached? I think about that sometimes when I think somebody's beyond hope. There are some people it's really hard for me to pray for in our government and so forth, and I always remember Paul. God got him. Okay, back to Acts chapter 9. We'll pick up the story where Paul is. Now you see what Paul said about himself and why he was on the road to Damascus. This is not some... Vacation that he's taken, he is on a mission. And that mission is to create disruption for the church and destroy people's lives. All because he hates the name of Jesus. Verse 3, and as he journeyed, he came near Damascus and suddenly there shined around about him a light from heaven. And he fell to the earth and heard a voice saying unto him, Saul, Saul, why persecutest thou me? And Saul said, Who art thou, Lord? How long did it take God to get a hold of Paul? It was almost instantaneous, or it may have been instantaneous. Because as soon as the light was brighter than the sun, as soon as he was knocked to the ground, he knew whatever this power is, is Lord. Whatever this power is from, has got to be from God. Only God could cause this kind of power. He thinks he's on a mission from God. He thinks what he's doing to persecute the church and imprison Christians, he thinks that's the will of God because he's all about the law of Moses and God gave the law of Moses. 
He thinks he's doing the right thing. He's so close-minded to the truth that he's not even willing to consider the miracles that he sees and hears about in Jerusalem. Nope. Got to destroy this right off the bat. Why? Because it's not according to the law of Moses. These people that are doing these things are not priests. They're not following the law of Moses. They're not doing the things according to the law of Moses and preaching the law of Moses, and these are the results of their preaching. Nope, they're using this name of Jesus that they say was crucified and raised from the dead. And we can't have that because it's not according to the law of Moses. But that light hits him. Now, folks, I didn't get saved this way, did you? Sure made an impact on Paul. The light knocked him to the ground and the voice came and said, what are you, Saul, why are you persecuting me? Why didn't this light happen six months earlier or a year earlier or before Stephen was stoned? Those are questions that there aren't answers for, I guess, huh? But the light did come. Maybe Paul wouldn't have been in a position even back then. Or at any other time. Maybe God got him at just the right time for him to be open to what was happening. I don't know. He's certainly by himself. He's not surrounded by the other Jewish leaders, the high priest or the council or anybody else. Maybe that had something to do with it. I don't know. But that light gets him. And Paul's first response is, who art thou, Lord? In other words, I thought I knew God. But you're him. Who are you? And the Lord said, I am Jesus whom thou persecutest. Boy, I bet that turned his world upside down. Because not only does Jesus say, I'm Jesus. He says, I'm Jesus whom you're fighting against. Can you imagine God saying something like that to you? Because what, what would you think? I'd think, Stephen, my goodness, Stephen. He said he saw Jesus standing at the right hand of the Father, and that's when people stoned him and killed him. He really did. And I held their coats. I consented to this. He's thinking about the people in Jerusalem that he put in jail. He's thinking about the people. He would instantly think about all those people that he made deny Jesus in order to stay out of prison. And some did. Some of the Christians blasphemed. They denied the name of Jesus just to stay out of prison. Paul's got a lot of stuff instantly that he would be recalling when Jesus says, I'm Jesus. Jesus didn't answer. When Paul says, who art thou, Lord? Jesus didn't say, I'm Jesus, the son of the living God. No, he said, I'm Jesus who you're fighting against. If that was you, where would you consider your the success of your fight to be? I have to assume that Paul instantly realized, my fight's over. I can't fight this. Don't know why I did to begin with. I thought I was doing right, thought I was following God, but I'm done. I am Jesus whom thou persecutest. It is hard for thee to kick against the pricks. In other words, he's saying... You're stupid for fighting against me. But you know what else it means, folks? 
the the symbolism here is uh, when people would plow fields with oxen. Oxen are big animals. They're tough to deal with and stuff like that. If an ox wants to go one place instead of where you want it to go, what are you going to do, you know? So in order to get an ox to turn right or left, they've got these long sticks behind the plow, the, you know, the plow's hooked up to the ox. They've got these long sticks that are pointed real sharp, and these pointed sticks that point, that poke them in the rear end, either on the right side or the left, whichever way they wanted them to turn. This may indicate that Jesus is saying, I've been trying to get to you all along. I've been prodding you, trying to get your attention, and you've been ignoring me all along. Now, what happened is the ox, if the ox didn't want to go where the, to where the driver was trying to tell him to go, the ox would kick back against this thing. Well, that doesn't make any sense. It's a foolish endeavor on its part because you can't even reach the stick. The stick is higher than the legs can reach. So you can kick for the rest of your life and never touch where the stick is coming from. And that's the example that Jesus uses. He said, it's hard for you to kick against the pricks. He may be saying, now you judge this for yourself. I'm not saying this is absolute, but it's worth considering. He may be saying, I've been talking to you all along. And you've been refusing me. You've been fighting against what I've been trying to show you. Is it possible that when these signs and wonders and miracles, when Acts chapter 3, the guy at the beautiful gate is healed, in Acts chapter 5, when the people in Jerusalem are, are healed and set free by the, uh, from demon possession, is it possible that God's trying to talk to Paul's heart all during this time? And say, this is right. You need to check further into this. But he shuts it down. He says, no, it's not the law of Moses. I'm not, I don't want anything to do with it. Maybe it has something to do with his career path. He is the golden boy of the Jewish council. Could have been any number of things. Jesus answers, Who art thou, Lord? Because I am Jesus whom thou persecutest. It is hard for you to kick against the pricks. And he, trembling and astonished. (laughs) I think that's an understatement. And he, trembling and astonished, said, Lord, what will thou have me to do? Notice he calls Jesus Lord. Now, folks, salvation comes down to two things, to believe that God has raised Jesus from the dead and to call him Lord. He knows Jesus is alive. He's heard about Jesus going to the cross. He's heard about him being raised from the dead. He's heard all the preaching, and that's what he's fighting against. Now he calls Jesus Lord. Paul gets saved right here on the spot. So the first thing he says, who are you, Lord? The next thing he says, Lord, what do you want me to do? I think that's a good pattern to follow in your Christian life. You follow follow the pattern of finding out, number one, who Jesus is, and number two, what he wants you to do. You're in good shape in your life. Amen? Lord, what will thou have me to do? And the Lord said unto him, Arise and go into the city, and it shall be told thee what thou must do. And when the men that journeyed with him stood speechless, hearing a voice, but seeing no man, and Saul arose from the earth, and when his eyes were opened. So all this must have happened when his eyes were shut. The blinding light must have caused him to shut his eyes. And all this has happened while his eyes were shut. When his eyes were opened, though, it says he saw no man. In other words, he couldn't see. Now, Paul says later on when he's talking about his own experience, he says he couldn't see for the glory of the light. It wasn't sickness or disease that happened to him. He couldn't see for the blind or he was blinded for the glory or the brightness of the light. 
So when he arose, he opened his eyes and saw no man, and they led him by the hand and brought him into Damascus. And he was three days without sight, and neither did he eat nor drink. What would you do in those three days if that was you? I would imagine those three days were a very interesting time. He doesn't care about eating. He doesn't care about drinking. He's wondering what in the world is going to happen to me. Now, we know something happens during that period of time that Jesus reveals to Ananias. We know during that time he has a vision of somebody coming in and laying his hands on him and receiving his sight again. So that's a good thing. I mean, it's not like God's keeping him in the dark spiritually in every manner. It's not like he's being threatened by the Lord during this time. Obviously, since he's just received Jesus as his Lord and Savior because he calls him Lord. The mercy of God is being shown to him. There may be things that God is talking to him, that the Holy Ghost is talking to him about regarding the law of Moses and revealing who Jesus is and how he fulfilled the law and so forth. We would assume that to be the case. Paul is so filled with knowledge of the law that as soon as he gets saved, the whole, you know the Holy Ghost is opening up the Old Testament to him in a way that we can't even, or at least I can't even fathom. I'm not real good on the Old Testament anyway. But goodness gracious, can you imagine what Paul would have seen with the knowledge and the training and the education that he had? So he spent three days without the ability to see, neither did he eat nor drink. Verse 10, and there was a certain disciple at Damascus named Ananias. And to him said the Lord in a vision, Ananias, and he said, behold, I'm here, Lord. You know, I, I love this. It says he's a disciple. It doesn't say he's a minister. It doesn't say he has special gift of any type, no apostle or anything. He's just a regular person, just a normal person. And the Lord speaks to him in a vision, and Ananias says, oh, hi, Jesus. Yeah, I'm over here. What do you need? It indicates, the way that this reads, it indicates that Jesus should be talking to you and you talking back to him like it's no rare occurrence. Doesn't it? A certain disciple was praying, and the Lord said, Ananias, he says, I'm here, Lord. Yeah. Hi, Jesus. It's good to see you. I love that. It makes it seem like such a casual thing, a common thing. Not common or casual in the sense that it's not something we should respect. Not casual or common in the sense that it's not a holy thing, but it's a regular thing. Behold, I'm here, Lord. And the Lord said unto him, Arise and go into the street which is called Straight and inquire in the house of Judas for one called Saul of Tarsus. For behold, he prays. That's revelation on, on Ananias' part. Number one, that Saul is in town, where he is in town, and that he's praying. He could only know that by revelation. And, verse 12, here's more revelation. Hath seen, Paul, Saul, has seen in a vision a man named Ananias coming in and putting his hand on him that he might receive his sight. Jesus must be pretty sure that he can get somebody named Ananias to go. Now, it may not mean that it has to be this guy. He's seen a man named Ananias coming in and laying hands on him. I sure hope he's got two people named Ananias close by. In case the first one says no. Because Ananias argues with the Lord about it. He reasons with God about this thing. Ananias answers and says, Lord... I've heard by many of this man 
how much evil he has done to thy saints at Jerusalem. Well, Paul just told Agrippa over in uh, King Agrippa over in Acts chapter 26. He told him all the stuff he did in Jerusalem. That's what this guy's heard. Things contrary to the name of Jesus. Contrary to the name. Contrary to the name. I've heard by many of this man how much evil he has done to thy saints at Jerusalem. And here he has authority from the chief priests. Yeah, because he got it. He asked for it. To bind all that call on thy name. But the Lord said unto him, Go your way, for he is a chosen vessel unto me. Number one, to bear my name. Another word for bear is to carry. To carry my name unto the Gentiles. I've got a plan for him. He's going to carry my name unto the Gentiles. If I'm Ananias, I'm thinking, praise God, that means he's away from here. Would you trust this guy? Ananias certainly doesn't seem to. Everybody's going to be wary of him at least, and rightly so. Go your way, for he's a chosen vessel unto me, number one, to bear my name before the Gentiles, number two, and before kings, to carry my name before kings, and number three, to carry my name before the children of Israel. Paul sent to three people, three groups, to the Gentiles, to kings, and to the children of Israel. Now, carrying the name of Jesus to the Gentiles and kings turned out to be a whole lot easier than carrying the name to the children of Israel. Look at the plan God has for this guy, taking him right off of murdering Christians. and saying, here's what I want him to do. It's amazing to me how many people will fail in something. And in many cases, it's a, it turns out to be a minor thing, at least compared to what they think it is. And they think God's through with them. Well, folks, if God can turn Paul away around from where he was and have a plan for his life, I think the rule of thumb is if you're still breathing, God can still use you. If you're still breathing, God has a plan. Verse 16, for I will show him how great things he must suffer for my name's sake. Now, folks, I, I don't exactly know how to, how to uh, approach this. Because you could say, well, Paul caused suffering, caused suffering to Christians and therefore the law of sowing and reaping. But God's not into that. God's not going to try to punish him. But right on the other hand, Paul is in such a unique position. And he has been, he, he is being, has been saved and is being delivered so radically. And by that, I mean not only just the way that he was saved. Like I said, I didn't get saved by a shining light going down the road. Did you? Do you know anybody else that did? Peter didn't. John didn't. James didn't. None of the other that came that turned out to be leaders in the church did i don't know of anybody that got saved in this radical manner he was saved in such a radical manner and delivered from such a what how do you how do you describe it from from such a a rabid opposition to the church then it's appropriate for Paul to have just as great or a strong commitment to the name of Jesus, even if it means suffering. Now, folks, there's suffering for all of us. Now, the only thing the Bible talks about Christian suffering is suffering persecution. 
And so where it says, how great things he must suffer for my namesake, that's what it turns out to be. Persecutions. And as a result of the persecutions and going and, and preaching the name of Jesus, Paul talks about the, all the things that he had to endure. He was shipwrecked. He was a night and, a, uh, night and day in the deep. He was beaten three times, 39 stripes. Three times he was beaten with rods. That means where they beat the bottom of your feet and then it takes a week or so for you to be able to walk again and that kind of stuff. He talked about all the kinds of things that he, that he refers to, uh, in perils among false brethren, among perils in the wilderness, perils in the city, perils of all kinds of things. But then this says the thing that comes only the most, the greatest care I have are the churches that I left behind. Those churches that I got established, people I got saved and taught the truth of the word and then had to leave to go somewhere else that God wanted me to go. That's what he said was a real burden upon him. And Jesus talks about the suffering that he's going to endure. Now, I don't know if Jesus, <laughs> I don't know how to approach this either. I don't know if Jesus had to tell Ananias that to get Ananias to go. Because all Ananias knows about this guy is he's killing Christians and putting them in jail. But if you're going to make him suffer, okay, yeah, then I'll go. I, I don't know. Maybe that's it. Maybe it's not. I don't know. But it's all in there together, isn't it? For I will show him how great things he must suffer for my name's sake. And Ananias went his way and entered into his house, entered into the house. And putting his hands on him, said, Brother Saul. Now, you wouldn't call an unsaved person brother, would you? So Ananias is convinced that he's saved. Brother Saul, fellow Christian, the Lord, even Jesus, that appeared unto you in the way as you came, has sent me. That thou mightest receive your sight and be filled with the Holy Ghost. Now, apparently, the Lord added that part between the time that we saw in chapter, uh, in verses 15 and 16, and when Ananias got there. Because if he's going to do the work of the Lord, if he's going to carry the name of Jesus to the Gentiles, to the kings, and to Israel, he's sure going to need the baptism of the Holy Ghost, didn't he? So whether that was something that Ananias initiated, or whether it was something the Lord added to and told him to do in addition to the other things, you decide. I don't know. He has sent me that thou mightest receive thy sight and be filled with the Holy Ghost. And immediately there fell from his eyes as it had been scales. And he received sight forthwith and arose and was baptized. Now this baptized is not talking about water baptism. It means he was baptized in the Holy Ghost. It has to be that because the previous verse talked about being filled with the Spirit. Being filled with the Spirit and being baptized in the Holy Ghost is are synonymous terms. And when he had received meat, he was strengthened. Then Saul was certain days with the disciples, which were at Damascus, and straightway, immediately, immediately, he preached Christ in the synagogues that he is the Son of God. Now, folks, the people in Damascus know this guy's coming to put them in jail. So just going to church is a risk. They get there. And Paul says, Jesus is the Son of God. What would you think? You know what my first thought would be? This guy's trying to trap me. He's trying to get me to say, amen, praise the Lord. And then he's going to put me in jail too. I would walk around this guy. I I wouldn't get within a block of this guy. I'm sorry, I'm just skeptical of that stuff. I'm skeptical when celebrities say they get saved. Yeah, yeah, yeah. Okay, that'll get you some press. 
What are you going to be next week? I'm sorry, I'm just skeptical. I can't imagine that everybody is going to fall right in and say, oh, praise Jesus, Saul is saved. In fact, it says in verse 21, but all that heard him were amazed and said, is this not the guy that destroyed them? which called on this name in Jerusalem and came here for that intent that he might bring them bound unto the chief priests. But Saul increased the more in strength and confounded the Jews which dwelt at Damascus, proving that this is the very Christ. Can you imagine the Jews that are there in Damascus? They hear Saul is coming. Saul, the golden boy, the killer, the assassin, the hit man. And he gets there and says, Jesus is the son of God. The Jews are probably thinking, this is a great trick. What a brilliant plan. He's going to get everybody to come out in the open and then snatch them all at once. But he keeps going. He says, no, Jesus really is the son of God. Forget the law of Moses. Jesus is the son of God. Then the Jews got to, they must have lost their minds. And after that many days were fulfilled, the Jews took counsel to kill him. Well, what do you do when you can't do anything else? you got to kill the guy. But their laying wait was known of Saul, and they watched the gates day and night to kill him. Then the disciples took him by night and led him down by the wall in the basket. And when Saul was come to Jerusalem, where does he go? He goes back to Jerusalem where he's imprisoned Christians, where everybody knows that he's got letters to imprison Christians. For what purpose? To tell people about Jesus. Man, I wish we had people with this kind of guts today. You know what most Christians would have done? When they were let down out of Damascus over the wall in a basket, they would have headed for the hills and found them a cave somewhere to live the rest of their lives, eating branch water and eating wild apples. Then when Saul was come to Jerusalem, he essayed. That means he tried. He attempted to join himself to the disciples, but they were all afraid of him. Well, I guess so. You put half of us in jail. Made the rest of us deny Jesus. But they were afraid of him and believed not that he was a disciple. But Barnabas took him and brought him to the apostles and declared unto them how he had seen the Lord in the way and how that he had spoken to them, to him and how, how he'd seen the Lord in the way and how the Lord had spoken to him, I guess, and how he had preached boldly at Damascus in the name of Jesus. And he was with them coming in and going out at Jerusalem. And he spoke boldly in the name of Jesus, the Lord Jesus and disputed against the Grecians, but they went about to slay him. Man, this guy finds trouble right off the bat, doesn't he? He finds trouble right off the bat. Now, folks, let me ask you a question. Of all the things that we know happened to Paul and all the trouble that he got himself in, what of this did God not deliver him out of? I think it's interesting that Paul said that he did things contrary to the name of Jesus. The first thing he starts off with is fighting against the signs and wonders and miracles that begin to take place in the city of Jerusalem. That has to be a catalyst for why Paul started putting people in prison. Before signs and wonders and miracles, who cares about Jesus or anybody else? There were other people that tried to gather groups unto themselves. Gamaliel is the one in chapter 5 that talks about that too, or chapter 4. He talks about that too. He says, look, we've had other people trying to gather groups. If God's not in this, it'll, it'll fizzle out. But if God's in this, you don't want to be fighting against God. So let's just leave him alone. Let's see how it works. So everybody said, yeah, okay, that's a good idea. So we'll just beat him and teach, command him not to preach or teach in the name of Jesus. 
So he starts off fighting against miracles and signs and wonders and, and evidence of Jesus being raised from the dead. Now he knows Jesus is raised from the dead, so what does he do? He comes back and preaches in the synagogues, the very same synagogues that he got letters from the high priest to go imprison Christians. Now he's standing there saying, no, Jesus is the Son of God. We were wrong about all that. What do you think he thinks about the council? Is he going to go in with the attitude that, you know, I, I bet I can convince these guys. I've got the same background they do. I know what the Old Testament says just like they do. I can convince these guys. I'll bet for a, at least a second or two he had the idea, I can turn these guys. I, I, I bet if it was me, I would think, I'll bet that's why God saved me the way he did. So I can go back to Jerusalem. That'd be my reason, only reason for going back to Jerusalem. I'll go back to Jerusalem. I'll get these guys saved. I'll convince them that Jesus is the Son of God. I see now all the Old Testament prophecies and how Jesus fulfilled those. I can do this. He gets there, and what do they want to do? They want to kill him. They don't care what he has to say. They don't care if he's right or wrong. They just want to kill him. And he jumps in the frying pan right off the bat and never backs up. Never once. As a matter of fact, the biggest falling out he has is with his closest friend, Barnabas, over somebody, John Mark, who was Barnabas' nephew, that turns back. Paul is so focused. I doubt very many people would like Paul if Paul was a present-day minister. I take great comfort in that. Because Paul had to be such a hard-nosed guy that he is on a mission and nothing is going to stop him. I want you to believe and I care about you and I love you. But if you're going to stand in my way, I'm still going forward. Man, that's the kind of person we need. That's the kind of people we need to be. He never wavered. He never faltered. Never. He didn't, we don't have a record of any time, in, even in jail, where he ever backed up and said, you know, maybe we should change our approach. Well, we, don't, we don't want to change the message, but maybe the method is not working. I get so tired of this, folks, because you hear so much of that stuff nowadays. Well, you got to reach the young people. Folks, if the young people aren't interested in truth, they're not going to be interested in anything. Yeah, but but we want to reach the young people. We'll just water down the truth and put it in music. Well, then what are they going to think? They're going to think, well, this is like my parents. They water everything down as it is. No, bless God, it's the name of Jesus. It's the full power of the name of Jesus. I believe in all Jesus all the time. I believe in the nuclear power of Jesus, if that's an appropriate way to say it. I don't know if it is, because nuclear power is nothing compared to the name of Jesus. So what do they do with Paul? Man, this guy is something, isn't he? What do they do with him? Notice it says, verse 29 again, And he spoke boldly in the name of the Lord Jesus, and disputed against the Grecians, but they went about to slay him. Which, when the brethren knew, they brought him down to Caesarea and sent him forth to Tarsus. In other words, they got him out of town. Then had the churches rest throughout all Judea and Galilee and Samaria and were edified and walking in the fear of the Lord and in the comfort of the Holy Ghost were multiplied. Folks, I want you to notice that it says, when Paul left town, the churches did great. 
How about that on your resume? What did you do to help the churches in Judea and Samaria? I left. That's what it says. Maybe it's because the conflict was gone. The council settled down because Paul's out of the way now. Now notice here's the name of Jesus in work again, and we'll close with this one. And it came to pass as Peter passed throughout all the quarters, he came down to the saints which dwelt at Lydda, and there he found a certain man named Aeneas which had kept his bed eight years and was sick of the palsy. I like how the Bible says that he was sick of the palsy. I think a lot of people need to get sick of the palsy or sick of their situation. And Peter said unto him, Aeneas, Jesus Christ maketh thee whole. Arise and make thy bed. And he arose immediately. Where did he say, be healed in the name of Jesus? Literally, this is the same phrase. It's the same Greek phrase that is used over in Peter's letter where it says, with his stripes you were healed. Same phraseology. Same exact phraseology. Check it out for yourself. Don't take my word for it. Check it out for yourself. It literally says, Jesus Christ healed thee. He's just simply saying, Here's what Jesus has already done. Well, doesn't the Bible say that the works of Jesus, which was healing the sick and, and, and raising people up and, and even healing cripples and stuff like that, doesn't that take place in the name of Jesus? Well, notice Peter didn't use. I, I get so frustrated with people because they think it's some magic charm in the name of Jesus. Folks, everything you do related to the kingdom of God is in the name of Jesus. When Paul said, whatsoever you do, do it in the name of Jesus. He means live your life in the name of Jesus. The name of Jesus is not just something that you use as a little symbol or a little sign. Peter is using it just simply saying, you know, Jesus healed you, Aeneas. Jesus already did the work. Now, where do we start? We started in chapter 3. And everything that happened with all the miracles and signs and wonders and all the, the healings that were that took place by shadow in Jerusalem started by one crippled guy getting healed. What happens? It starts all over again. Jesus Christ maketh thee whole. Jesus healed you. Jesus healed you. That's some sermon. Aeneas, let me teach you about faith. Let me teach you what it means to believe in your heart and say with your mouth. Let me teach you the seven steps of strong faith. You heard the story one time. of uh, Jerry Savelle told the story. Um, there was somebody else that was preaching a, some kind of convention. I think it was Bill. Oh, yeah, it was Bill Bozanski. He was preaching some sermon, and he came up with this, this message. He had about an hour to, to, to preach, and he came up with a sermon, 26 Steps to Strong Faith. Well, he got through about 12 of them. And his hour is up, and he has to run to the airport and catch a plane. So he sees Jerry Savelle sitting there and says, Jerry, come finish these. And Jerry's thinking, I got 14 steps to go. I have no idea. What are 14 steps? So he stands up there. He doesn't know what he's saying. He doesn't know what's going on. So many people have this idea. This is such a hard thing. Look at Peter's message. Jesus healed you. Jesus healed you. That's it. No offering, no special music. Jesus healed you. Arise and make your bed. And he arose immediately. And all that dwelt in Lydda and Sharon saw him and turned to the Lord. The whole city was reached because he simply told what Jesus had done. Folks, that is making a demand on the name of Jesus.
when you tell people what Jesus has already done for them. Amen? Thank God for the name of Jesus. Well, how's it work for you? Has the name of Jesus diminished? Is the name of Jesus worth standing up for? Oh, you're standing up. Huh? <laughs> Didn't know what was going on there for a minute. I meant that figuratively. I'm talking about where Paul was concerned. What an example we've got. Here's a guy that was willing to jump into the middle of the fire because he found out that Jesus is Lord. Amen. Let's pray. Father, we thank you so much for your word. Thank you for the precious name of Jesus. Thank you, Father, that when we put a demand on the name of Jesus to do the works that Jesus did here on the earth, we thank you that Jesus backs that name up with all the power of heaven. Thank you, Father, that the name of Jesus has not diminished. We thank you that it has not decreased in power. It is still the only name whereby men may be saved, and it is the name wherein is healing. Thank you, Father, that Jesus has healed us. Lord, we thank you for the work that you're doing in our bodies. We stand strong in faith and we glorify you. We declare that by the stripes of Jesus, we are healed. Amen, amen, and amen. Praise the Lord. Well, thank you so much for being here with us. Have a great week. Come back and be with us again Wednesday night if you can. You're dismissed.